Our next qualification, disqualification, depending on how you word it, I suppose, in the list in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1.7 is in Titus 1.7, it's that a minister cannot be soon angry, which means he can't be quickly angered. He can't be hot-tempered, so to speak. The Greek word orgilos, which is translated as soon angry in Titus 1.7, refers to somebody who's inclined or prone to be angry. In other words, they have an angry disposition and they're easily angered. They have a quick fuse, a short fuse, a hot temper, whatever type of phrase you want to use to describe it. Adam Clark describes this as the necessity for a minister to not be a choleric man, one who's irritable, who's apt to be inflamed on every opposition, one who has not proper command over his own temper. MacArthur says that orgilos, meaning quick temper, doesn't refer to occasional outbursts, bad as those are, but to a propensity to anger. The quick-tempered person, he says, is irascible. He has a short fuse and is easily provoked. I'll give you one more quote that gives some background to this. William Barclay explains that there are two Greek words for anger. There is thumos, which is the anger that quickly blazes up and just as quickly subsides, like a fire in straw. And there is orge, the noun connected with orgilos, which is the word that's here, which means ingrained anger. Though it can be used as an anger that is sudden, usually it's got a deeper meaning than that. And he goes on to say it's not the anger the sudden blaze alone, perhaps but the wrath which is continually fed to keep it alive. A blaze of anger is an unhappy thing, but this long-lived, purposely maintained anger is still worse. Those who nourish their anger against another person are not fit to be office bearers of the church. That's the end of his quote. We certainly do have to guard against any sudden blaze of anger, but a simmering spirit of anger that's like a continual fire burning within is destructively dangerous, not only for anyone who it might spill out on, but it's dangerous for the one that feeds it as well, because its slow but unending boil will end up creating a spirit of deep unrest within and will encourage the growth of roots of bitterness and fruits of resentment and many other ruinous relational issues. A man in a position of spiritual leadership has to be capable of controlling his emotions. While we are still in the process of developing the disposition of Christ, and our emotions may get the better of us at times, but ministerial leaders cannot be prone to outbursts of anger because they're living in an emotional state where their flame is always close to the fuse. Though we are still working on removing all the combustible materials from within us, so to speak, we do need to be especially careful about protecting ourselves and other people from any inappropriate fire-igniting passions that might create some angry outburst. Though I didn't combine this with some of the other parallels in Paul's list that are close to it, like not being a striker or a brawler, it's part of that same family of issues because it addresses an aggressive, uncontrolled spirit that can manifest itself in damaging interactions and destructive behaviors that will certainly be detrimental, if not antithetical, to the work of the ministry. The principal difference between these issues is that a striker or a brawler might have control of their emotions when they attack other people or when they're seeking out conflict, while someone that's soon angry often easily loses control of their emotions. So there's a little bit of a difference in someone that's soon angry and somebody that just has a spirit of a striker. A striker could strike somebody with premeditation, while someone that's soon angry is often someone that it comes on them quickly or it's something that has been building within them that is close to the surface. Though many altercations arise from a loss of temper, some are calmly considered tactical decisions, like a coldly calculated and controlled attack on someone else that didn't come out of the blue as a result of someone losing their temper, but was, as I said a moment ago, a premeditated assault. In contrast to that, this word orgilos is usually referring to more of a problematic quality that is present in somebody that has a hot temper, a short fuse. 
potentially might even be violence-prone, whether in overly aggressive expressions towards other people or even actions. A man who's prone to violent outbursts, whether in word or in deed, and who can't control his emotions in his interactions with other people is not a fit ambassador of Christ and certainly is not going to be a good protector of Christ's people. He'll end up doing more damage than good because of his lack of self-control. We all deal with anger and the potential that we could lose our temper over something. And if a person becoming inappropriately angry at some point automatically disqualified them from the ministry, it's likely there wouldn't be any human ministers of God, or there'd be very few. But we have to always strive to be slow to anger, just as God is described in the Bible as being slow to anger. Even when we feel it's justified and we have to keep a bridle on any wrong kind of anger building within us. We have to be careful not to kindle fires in our heart or let anyone else kindle them for that matter. And then we also have to avoid the desire to tend them like someone tending a fire in order to keep them always hot. And that's what people often do. They get some grudge or they get some root of bitterness and then they tend it like a gardener. They make sure that root keeps growing or that that fire stays hot. Ungodly anger, in contrast to godly anger, which I'll come back to, is always a byproduct of other issues. It grows in soil that's been contaminated by some carnal seed that's taken root in a person's heart and mind. Inappropriate anger is driven by evil that began in the heart through jealousy, pride, or some other corrupted motivators that start with a slow boil within that'll eventually become so superheated that it explodes into ungodly words or actions. The first recorded expression of human anger in the scripture was kindled by wrong thoughts and feelings that then incited evil. Cain's envy of his brother Abel was the spark that lit the burner in his heart that led to the murder of his brother that we see in Genesis 4, 3-8. The expression that's used for Cain's feeling when God did not respect his offering in the same way he respected his brother's was that he was very wroth. He was full of wrath and his countenance fell. Even after God talked to him about that condition that his heart was in and warned him that saying that state of mind would lead to sin lying at the door, literally meaning taking sinful action was right within reach. In spite of that, Cain went out, talked with his brother, and ended up murdering him. A minister of Christ has to guard his heart against the fostering of thoughts or feelings that might inspire anger, let alone murderous anger of some kind. Once those corrupt seeds take root, they will, to mix metaphors into a different example, they'll start percolating until they build to a slow boil that keeps a constant carnal high temperature level inside. And if that heat isn't lowered, and better yet turned off, as I said just a few moments ago, it'll eventually burst forth in a superheated steam that'll scald anything within its reach. Proverbs 25:28 says, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. A man that can't rule over his own spirit will allow its negative feelings to build until they break down his walls of self-restraint and then break forth like a flood out of the city of his heart. And breaking the walls down from within in that kind of way will leave a breach in the spirit, like that mentioned in Proverbs 15.4, that will be an opening for external enemies to further widen and open that breach, whether to enter or to exert outside influence on the one whose heart's been breached in order to aggravate further breaches or a greater widening of that breach. As I said, though, I am not arguing that a man who's lost his temper can't serve in the ministry. As human men, we may lose our tempers, but we can't justify ourselves when we do so. We should recognize that we're wrong when we lose our temper, and we should repent to those who we may have wronged by losing it. And we should always be working to better control our emotions. And we certainly can't be known for having a quick fuse or a bad temper. If we have that kind of reputation, we're going to need to have our reputation remodeled by some genuine transformation. 
Anger is devastating, not only to those who are its object, but to the vessel that it's allowed to boil up in. If you entertain anger, you feed wrath, you will likely end up causing great damage to other people, but you'll also scald your own spirit with its internal heat as well, and you'll end up deeply damaging your relationships and reputation with other people, which is another way of destroying yourself. Wrath will end up killing the person who allows it to consume him just as completely as it does anyone who is its object. Job 5.2 says, For wrath killeth the foolish man, and envy slayeth the silly one. Wrath will not only literally kill the foolish man, either by getting him killed by someone who's stronger than he is, or simply more dangerous, who he foolishly picks a fight with, or by causing him so much stress, high blood pressure, and other things, that he ends up killing himself. But it will also kill him spiritually, since it'll undermine, if not obviate, the development of the disposition of Christ in him, and it might end up killing his reputation and influence among God's people as well. Proverbs 19.19 makes the very same point in a slightly different way. It says, A man of great wrath shall suffer punishment, for if thou deliver him, yet thou must do it again. Not only will such a man suffer punishment or loss of reputation for his behavior, many of those who are slaves of their own lack of self-control will, even if they suffer or cause others to suffer as a result of their temper, keep repeating the same destructive behavior because they lack the ability or the will to learn their lesson. It's telling how many times the Bible associates wrongly placed or quick-tempered anger with the qualities of a fool, by the way, or with acting foolishly. There are many examples of that in the book of Proverbs, and I'll give you several others as well. Proverbs 12.16 says, A fool's wrath is presently known, but a prudent man covereth shame. A fool's anger is quickly ignited. It's presently known in the sense that when he feels anger, you'll know it pretty quick. You'll know it maybe even in the moment that he feels it. The Hebrew phrase is translated as presently known, literally means known in that day. Presently, there is the Hebrew word yom, which is usually referred to a day. In other words, if somebody like this has their buttons pushed, you'll probably know it pretty quick. The day they're angered in is the day you'll experience their anger. A wise man, though, won't only hold his anger in check, not allowing it to burst out of his control. He'll do so long enough to have the time to consider whether anger is justified and how to best address whatever it is that's made him angry. Another example in Proverbs in 14.17, it says, He that is soon angry dealeth foolishly, and a man of wicked devices is hated. Spiritual leaders can't afford to deal foolishly with those under their care or in regard to conditions that they're called to address. A person who's soon angry, quick-tempered, will seldom, if ever, take the time to consider whether their anger is justified or how to best handle the person or condition they're angry about, which will inevitably result in them dealing with issues and people in the wrong ways. Another example is in Proverbs 14.29, which says, He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding, but he that is hasty of spirit exalteth folly. Those who can't control their emotions are certain to act foolishly. Being slow to wrath is of tremendous benefit, especially for leaders, because that slowing of the potential response time before you speak or act will give you space to consider all the conditions and how to best judge them, as well as to consider whether your growing anger is truly righteous indignation or just the increasing heat of your own carnal conflagration. There are many examples in the Bible of the necessity of being slow to anger or avoiding the stirring up of strife. I'll give you a couple of those in Proverbs before we move on with some of the other examples about the relationship between fools and anger. Proverbs 15.18 says, A wrathful man stirreth up strife, but he that is slow to anger appeaseth strife. Proverbs 29.22 says, An angry man stirreth up strife, but a furious man aboundeth in transgression. 
Some people desire to stir up strife, but that should never be the spirit of a true minister of God. Sadly, though, I've known men who seem to thrive on stirring up strife, aggravating conditions directly, and sometimes just as often doing so indirectly by stirring up the spirits of other men behind the scenes in order to instigate them to engage in battle with other people. Ministers of God, and all of God's people for that matter, should avoid friendship with those who are known for that kind of behavior. Proverbs 22, 24-25 says, Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man thou shalt not go. And if common sense wouldn't tell you why you shouldn't, it explains it to you, lest thou learn his ways and get a snare to thy soul. Another example of being slow to anger is in Proverbs 16.32 when it says, He that's slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh the city. The power to overcome enemies without that are external to us is nothing in comparison to the strength that's needed to overcome our enemies within. Those who are able to do the latter by controlling their improper or excessive emotions, for example, are mightier by far than those who are conquerors of external enemies. Coming back to some of the other examples of fools and foolishness being associated with anger, Proverbs 27.3 said, A stone is heavy and the sand weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than them both. The weight of a fool's wrath, by the way, will not only press down on other people, it'll end up burying him as well. Ecclesiastes 7.9 says, Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. It is a simple fact that when a man, no matter how high his place or position, is hasty in his spirit to be angry, he is acting like a fool. All that said, there are times when anger is appropriate, but in order to define whether it's a proper or an improper feeling or expression, we have to determine whether it's in harmony with the purpose of God and whether it's in line with the disposition of Christ. God is described as angry in many passages in the Bible, and clearly it's not a sinful expression when that feeling is justified by its target being something that is evil. Deuteronomy 29:28 describes God as driving the wicked out of the land in anger and wrath and in great indignation. And there are many other passages in the Bible that refer to his anger, which, by merit of him being completely righteous, can only be righteous in nature. So there is a place for righteous anger, though not all anger that someone might attempt to label as righteous actually is righteous. There's several ingredients, just a couple of which I'll give in a moment, that have to all be present or whatever anger we think we're feeling is not going to be righteous anger. First and foremost, the motivation or driver of proper righteous anger has to be something that's evil that would cause God himself to be angry. If God isn't likely to be angry over something that you're angry about, it's pretty certain that it's not something that you should be angry about and certainly not something you should label as rightful, righteous indignation. Second, it's worth noting that righteous anger is almost never, if ever, anger about how you have been treated or regarding something that's affected you personally. It's almost always, as I said, if not always, anger regarding the mistreatment of other people, of the things of God, or in response to some disrespect or blasphemy that's aimed towards Him. So it's undoubtedly righteous to be angry over things that dishonor God, or over mistreatment of His holy things or His holy people. But being angry about how someone has dishonored or mistreated you personally is not always something you can appropriately label as righteous anger or righteous indignation. In part, that's the case because of the subjective nature of your own feelings and opinions about yourself. And in part, it's the case because there's a difference between protecting others, which we do have to do, and allowing ourselves at times, as we see in 1 Corinthians 6-7, to be defrauded. Third, righteous anger will be expressed at the right object and in the right way. Sometimes people are angry at the right thing, 
something evil that's been done, for example, but they take out that anger on the wrong object or in a way that's excessive or unjust in its application or its scale. A severe example of this is found in Genesis 34, when Jacob's daughter Dina was assaulted by Shechem. And in response, her brothers were, I think rightfully, grieved and very wroth, as it says in Genesis 34, 7. They were full of great wrath, and who would not be if their sister had been assaulted in the way Dina was? But rather than to openly call for Shechem, who was the one who committed the crime, to be punished for his sin against their sister, which, by the way, would likely have caused a war they might not have thought they could win, they instead deceived him and his father Hamor by requesting that they and all the men in the city they ruled be circumcised, knowing that after that operation they'd be physically weakened for a time and able to be more easily killed. Three days after the surgery, when the men of the city were still in pain, it says that Dina's brothers Simeon and Levi took each man his sword and came upon the city boldly and slew all the males. And they slew Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and spoiled the city because they had defiled their sister. That's in Genesis 34, 25 to 27. Now, someone might attempt to argue that the citizens of the city and Shechem's father, Hamor, for that matter, had influenced Dina in some way that led her to being in a situation or a location or something that might have allowed for her assault. There is no evidence of that in the biblical text. The Bible appears to put the blame solely on the one who assaulted her, Shechem. And thus, it appears excessive and unjust for the two brothers to have killed every man in the city when every man in the city could not possibly have been responsible for the assault on their sister. That excessive use of force and unjustly excessive application of judgment is the result of anger that took righteous judgment on a terrible sin out of the realm of righteousness in the way that it was carried out and to the degree and number of people who it was carried out upon. Dina's assault was a horrific evil, but the murder of the men who had no apparent involvement in it was evil as well. Jacob later makes it clear that their anger was sinful and cursed, not because it was wrongly motivated anger initially, but because it was unrestrained and improperly applied. Genesis 49, 5-7, he says, Simeon and Levi are brethren, instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly. Mine honor be not thou united, for in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. It's significant that those two brothers were the next in line after their older brother Reuben had lost his place as firstborn in the line of succession after he engaged in immorality with his father's concubine Bilhah and ended up being displaced from his preeminent position as a firstborn by his father because he did so, which you'll see in Genesis 35:22 and it's mentioned in Genesis 49:3-4. The future royal line of kings, ruling over all the tribes of Israel and from which the Messiah would come, would thus pass by these three oldest brothers and fall on Judah, who Jacob described as the one whom thy brethren shall praise in Genesis 49:10, which is a wordplay on the name Judah or Judah, which means praise. And he said that the scepter would not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Is found in Genesis 49.10. Though Levi's line was later used for the priesthood, which is a high honor, Jesus wasn't of the seed of Levi. He was a scion of the tribe of Judah in that lineage, again demonstrating the preeminence of that tribe, because Reuben had been taken out of the line of being given the firstborn preeminence because of his immorality, and Simeon and Levi had been taken out of the line of being the firstborn in inheritance because of their wrath and excessiveness in carrying out that wrath. 
Like Simeon and Levi, I've known ministers who have become angry over some issue, whether justified or not, who've exceeded their mandate of authority in the degree and in the method of judgment they exercise because they allowed their anger to swell beyond the scale of any righteous justice and or, for that matter, to expand beyond its true object. I've seen angry, sometimes even savage messages given to a whole congregation where everyone in the assembly were effectively made the object of the message and taken to task as if they had all done some crime when it was only one person who had done some evil and thus who was the one who was truly culpable. That is wrong for several reasons. To begin with, you don't punish everyone, including people who haven't done anything wrong because of the sin of one person. Some will, wrongly I believe, argue that they're preemptively teaching the people by rebuking them, even though they haven't done anything, to keep them from doing these kind of things. And so they hammer the whole group, but that is simply wrong. You don't beat on people who haven't done anything worthy of punishment in order to supposedly put the fear of God into them so that they never will. Warnings might be preemptive and they might be pretty sharp, but punishment for a crime that you haven't even done should never be preemptive. Those kind of practices might frighten some people into never doing evil because they don't want to be pummeled again, but those kind of tactics are the tools of an abuser, not a shepherd. Or, as the Lord referred to them in Zechariah 11:15-17, they're the instruments of a foolish shepherd that tear in pieces. Any supposed shepherd of God who beats angrily on the flock in some misled belief that doing so is training them not to step out of line or to wander away is not only a foolish shepherd, he's also a false shepherd. True shepherds don't beat the sheep with their words or otherwise when they've done nothing to deserve that kind of treatment. And when discipline is necessary because of some evil that's been done, they don't exceed the parameters of proper justice in their application of it. We have to have the spirit and the tools of a true shepherd whose desire is to protect and provide for the sheep in the proper ways. There are right and there are wrong methods for dealing with anger When the spark of anger within you first starts to catch flame, you have to control the burn by not allowing it to spread outside of righteous boundaries. Once anger, even righteous anger, bursts forth and spreads beyond its appointed bounds, and I mean appointed by God, it'll do more damage than any possible good you may think you're accomplishing by acting or speaking in anger. Proverbs 17, 14 says, The beginning of strife is as when one letteth out water, therefore leave off contention before it be meddled with we have to be very careful not to open a valve in the water tank of our internal emotions when one of those emotions, anger in this case, is building in pressure inside of us because it will, like when one letteth out water, end up bursting out at times far more powerfully and destructively than we might have even intended. We have to have a spiritual control valve if we're going to keep using the metaphor of water which is what Proverbs 17, 14 was referring to. And that spiritual control valve is to help us let off the pressure and eventually keep that from bursting forth in an inappropriate way. Or if we're going to use the metaphor of fire, we need a spiritual damper to smother the carnal oxygen that that feeling is feeding on. Or it might burst its bounds so violently that it does damage that can't be undone or that'll take a great deal of time and effort to heal or reverse. Many manifestations of improper or excessive anger can be traced back to carnal and not righteous instigators. Though righteous indignation, wrongly allowed to expand beyond its bounds, will become unrighteous in spirit and expression, most examples of unrighteous anger are the product of unrighteous origins. Very often, the wrong kind of anger is motivated by personal affronts or irritations that can and most of the time should be overlooked and simply ignored. It's our choice to decide whether or not we're going to respond angrily to those kind of things. 
Proverbs 19.11 says, The discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. We can use our wise discretion to defer our anger rather than allowing our unwise feelings in the moment to override our self-discipline. It truly is a glory to pass over a transgression because it takes strength of character and a conquering level of self-control to choose to take blows, literally or figuratively, without losing our spirit or responding in kind. Many times, men justify their anger by claiming it's righteous indignation when it is no such thing. We have to be extremely cautious to always consider what the true source of our anger is and whether or not what we're angry about is truly something God is angry about. I heard a preacher once point out that the most frequent Old Testament term for anger, the Hebrew word af, A-P-H, denotes human anger 47 times and at least 42 of them, which he noted is 89%, indicate sinful anger. He went on to say, while we tend to assume the best about ourselves, the Bible frequently warns against self-deception. We tend to conceal our sins, covering them with spiritual whiteout. We paint our anger as pure. The Bible knows better. We must approach this question with a keen awareness of this danger. That said, Paul states that it is possible to be angry while not sinning by feeling or even acting on that emotion in the wrong way. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Paul's point is not only that we shouldn't have the wrong motivations behind our anger or wrong expressions of it, but that we shouldn't harbor it in our heart in a way that keeps storing up more and more anger within us until it will inexorably expand to an eventual point of explosion. It is possible to be angry and for that anger not to be sinful. But in order for that to be the case, the reason for the anger has to be based on righteous motivations and the expression of the anger has to be righteous as well. I have known far too many ministers, which is an expression I've used unfortunately many times in these classes, I've known far too many ministers that have excused their unrighteous abuse and their acts of psychological warfare against the people, supposedly under their care, by arguing that they had a righteous motive or justification for those type of ways and means. It may be that there was a reason, at least in some cases, why they felt a legitimate feeling of righteous indignation about something a person in their assembly was saying or doing that they felt needed correcting, but that still does not entitle them to overreach in their authority and use excessive or abusive methods of discipline. Jacob exhibited this proper approach to the care of the people and the animals, for that matter, under his oversight, when in Genesis thirty-three thirteen he said, The children are tender, and the flocks and herds with young are with me. And if men should overdrive them one day, all the flock will die. Even when it's necessary to move others forward or correct their course, that doesn't give us the carte blanche to overdrive them, in other words, to push them, whether in direction or in overcorrection, harder than we should. As I noted earlier, any anger that we have that is righteous in nature will have a righteous cause that's instigated it. In Matthew 5.22, Jesus said, Whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Being angry without a legitimate, appropriate, righteous cause is a sin. Jesus' whipping and driving of the money changers out of the temple was certainly an act of righteous indignation because he was motivated by the disrespectful way they were treating the holy house of God his Father. John 2, 13 to 17 is when it describes Jesus driving them out with a scourge of cords. And it says that when the disciples saw him do so, they remembered the scripture that was written that the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. There is a zeal that will provoke a godly man to anger that will, if it's properly exercised, result in righteous expressions of that anger. But all zeal is not the zeal of God's house. And all zeal is not motivated by godly impulses. 
Some zeal is the work of the flesh, if it's a zeal for something carnal rather than spiritual. Some other examples, by the way, in the Bible of individuals that are being righteously angry, in other words, their indignation is righteous indignation, include Moses' great anger toward Pharaoh that you see in Exodus 11.8, Jonathan's anger at his father Saul's treatment of David that you see in 1 Samuel 20, 30-34. There's several examples in Nehemiah. It says in Nehemiah 5.6 that he was very angry at the mistreatment of the poorer people by some of their brethren. In Nehemiah 13.8, it describes his anger and that he was grieved sore at the wicked Tobiah being given a room in the courts of the house of God. He went so far, by the way, as to throw out Tobiah's furniture and items out in the street, so to speak. And then in Nehemiah 13.25, it has one of the most colorful examples in the Bible, almost on the level of Jesus driving out the money changers from the temple, when it said that he cursed and struck and even plucked the hair off of the Jews who had married pagan women. I'm not sure most of us would think of hair pulling as an expression of righteous anger, but in this case, it clearly was. One way that you could actually translate that where it said he pulled off their hair is that either he ripped their hair out or he took them by the hair of the head and shook them. But it does not look like that was an example of unrighteous anger. It looks like it was appropriate anger, even in the physical manifestations that it took because of the wickedness that they were doing. To give you one more example of Jesus' anger, before we move on, you can find another example of it in Mark 3, 5, where it said he was angry towards those individuals who were challenging him about healing on the Sabbath. Though all of that does give justification for what we might call righteous indignation or righteous anger, it doesn't give leaders, or anyone for that matter, the license to be angry without a biblically appropriate cause, nor does it allow for excessive or inappropriate expressions of anger, as I keep repeating. Improper and unrestrained anger is a dangerous thing in any individual, but it's especially dangerous in a leader because someone in a leadership position has the power to use his anger in abusive and damaging ways that other people may not, and to incorrectly excuse those kind of actions by claiming his angry and abusive words or actions are necessary in order to discipline the children under his care. Brethren, the children under our care as ministers are not our children. They are God's children, and we should be very careful how we handle His children. We should never lose our temper with God's children, especially in some sudden and explosive way. We should always strive to maintain control of how we express any anger we might feel so that our words and our interactions with God's children never expand into abusive and untoward means and methods of what we want to call discipline. Some might attempt to argue that a shepherd trying to protect the sheep has to have these kind of qualities of being an angry, belligerent type of person because they are intended to be warlike against those who might endanger or attack the sheep. Though it's certainly true that a shepherd might need to resort to the role of a battle-ready protector of the flock and will need to have a warlike spirit against wickedness, men who are prone to anger and emotional outbursts make the flock the objects of their wrath just as often if not more than the wolves and they end up being as much if not more of a danger to the flock as any wolf might be again to use this expression i keep saying and it's a sad thing that i have to say it but i have seen far too many supposed protectors of the flock beat on the flock as much or more than they beat back any external enemies of the flock Something is seriously deficient in the mindset and methodology of a minister when he spends more time taking shots at the flock within the walls of the church than he does in taking a stand against their foes outside the church. 
I know men who will almost never engage in any way with the world outside the church, essentially claiming, entirely unbiblically by the way, that they have no calling to go out into the world to call the lost into the church, or for that matter to stand against the falling darkness outside the walls of the church. God, according to them, though not according to the descriptions we see in the scripture, will supposedly call anyone he wants into the church without them ever evangelizing anyone in any public arena of any kind which is exactly the opposite of what we see throughout the book of Acts, which is where we see the scripture saying God added to the church daily. He added the church daily, not just by bringing people into the church who no one had ever witnessed to, but through a great deal of witnessing to people outside of the church. And some of the same men claim that it would be carnally political to engage with the beastly powers by taking some kind of a public side on cultural issues or speaking or acting in any way in the public square, entirely ignoring that many of the greatest men and women of God in the Bible did that very thing. Just consider Daniel in the Old Testament period or Paul in the New Testament period, who both were very public in their positions and faced great persecution at times from the civil powers. Perhaps it's cowardice that's created those kind of ideologies about interacting with the world, though I certainly pray it is not. God help us if that's the case, because the church is never going to be restored by cravens, and the age to come, the millennial reign period in particular, will not be administered and ruled by cowards. Some seem to think they have no calling to call out the evils of this present world in the arena where they're occurring. Instead, they believe they are intended to hide behind the walls of their church and expend all their anger against sin on the flock within those walls, when most of the flock are laboring to live above sin to the best of their ability. Meanwhile, the very same kind of ministers sit in passive pusillanimity and silent self-protection in their supposed spiritual safe houses while those outside the walls are suffering and dying in their sins or are hearing less and less true prophets of God thundering out against the dying of the light in this world and sounding a trumpet call regarding the impending judgment of God that should be echoing around the world, not just inside the walls of the church, but across the whole face of the earth. Forgive me, I might be digressing from the main topic here, but I may not be. If a man expends his anger, especially an emotional outburst on the flock of God, who are, at least generally speaking, trying to follow the shepherd, by interacting abusively with them, while simultaneously hiding behind the walls of his church, refusing to preach the message of hope to the lost, or to call out sin as sin in the public arena, as the prophets and preachers of God almost always did in the biblical period, that it may be he's no true minister of God at all. And a man who makes the children of God who are placed under his care and protection the primary objects of his angry and abusive behavior and psychologically perverse methods of domination while sitting silent in a sealed up sanctuary in the face of a dying world that is blaspheming God in the truth and is in great danger of death and destruction is surely no true minister of God. He's more like an abusive parent who bullies and terrorizes his own family within the walls of their home, where he knows his supposed strength can't be resisted, while being no more than a spineless coward in the public arena, since he's trained his family to fear his big-footed bullying and his abusive behavior. But in his own heart, very often, and in the public arena, he is, as most bullies are, nothing but a coward. And he knows his supposed power and authority, which is being misapplied in his home, will be revealed as just a facade of strength if it was ever faced with any true opposition. It's a lot easier to stand in a pulpit and strike at the people of God who are trying to serve God with messages of fear and domination while simultaneously refusing to take a stand against the enemies of God outside of the church or to try to deliver them from their enmity with God by witnessing to them and trying to bring them into the church. 
The first of those, if you have people that aren't going to resist your abusive behavior, takes no courage at all. The last takes great courage. God help us not to be bullies in our pulpits, beating down the flock with our easily instigated anger and driving them with emotional outbursts. If we're going to be soon angry, let our short fuse be the measure of our tolerance for blasphemy against God and the truth and against the enemies of his people, whether they're outside the church or whether they're within the church. And there have been far more enemies of God and of God's people at the leadership level in the history of the church than there have been at the level of the laity. James concisely communicates the necessity for the people of God, and especially ministers of God, to be slow to anger, and for any anger that does rise in them to be the result of the righteousness of God and not the carnal wrath of man, in James 1.19-20, which we'll close with. He says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God.